Welcome to Try Not to Blink. Today's show is going to offer an important PSA regarding learning problems in kids. Plus, we'll even debate which kids must be cycloed in their annual exam. We will inspire you to copy your dentist and encourage lid hygiene just like they encourage flossing. And then Dr. Morrison is going to introduce the basic steps of a clinical pathway to dry eye treatment, and we will both give you our favorite pearls to succeeding in that. One hook that we use um, that is can be effective is how many times, do you think about your dry, your eye feeling dry every single day? And then if yes, well, how many times a day? And that, that's not a normal, you shouldn't be having to go through every single day thinking about dry eye instead of finishing off whatever it is that you're doing or do, thinking about the positives or whatever, whatever it is. And that sometimes brings, reminds people that that's not, it's not a normal thing. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible. Makers of stellar gas permeable lenses and the incredible custom stable scleral lens. I'm your host, Roya Habibi, and joining me is Sheila Morrison. Sheila, let's do this. I've missed you. Everyone knows we record every week, but that doesn't always happen. Our show is every week, but we record here and there, so it's been too long. It has been, and I look forward to the, you know that it's always a nice time at the end of the day to sit and chill and visit. So yeah, it has Talk been a more while. eyes. Yeah. I'm kind of happy this is just a, an episode with the two of us to have it kind of like bring us back into the next round. We've got a couple episodes coming up that I'm pretty excited about. I know you are too. Absolutely. The final um, in our kind of coaching series is coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, we've got a couple other sessions that are going to be really fun as well. 100%. Where I want to talk a little bit about something that is taught, you know, we know this, but sometimes can be forgotten, especially when it comes to, you know, talking to parents um, in regards to how very important it is to make sure that children receive routine eye care. You know, often kids with vision problems are actually totally unaware. Kids just don't know what they don't know. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So they'll come into the clinic and they assume that everybody sees the way that they do. And so for us, it's really important to really watch for those signs that could suggest that a child is struggling to see. Or it's like the parent doesn't know, right? Like, of course, the child doesn't know. But more importantly, how often do we get asked, okay, when should I bring my kid in to get their eyes checked? And by then they're already like five years old or something. Right. Or they're just shocked that that their kid would have problems, especially if they don't have problems, right? So, you know, I mean, we to be honest, have when was car- your first exam? To, well, man, mine, I don't really remember having eye exams. I mean, I know that I did. My parents said that they took us in because I've asked them this now because I don't recall having, I remember the dentist. That's a lot more of a prominent memory for some reason, but <laughs> eye exams, I don't really remember. So I'm sure I had maybe one or two only, you know, before maybe the age of like 10 or 11 or something like that. My parents didn't wear glasses early on. It just wasn't a thing at our age. Um, how about you? Yeah. I, my first eye exam was in optometry school. No, it was not. I swear. I swear. <gasps> oh my gosh. I've never I t- been. Do you want another dirty little secret? Tell me. <laughs> I haven't actually had a routine eye exam aside from my own self-imaging and self-prescriptions in five years. I know. Why are we so bad? I don't I'm know. The same way. I'm the same. I know. Way. I know. So then, but how yeah, can you, and you say know the patient- to a parent that you're 
So you say some parents don't know, and some of the ones that surprise me the most that we really have to kind of look out for include, surprisingly, I have specialty lens patients who have keratoconus or something like that themselves, or really high astigmatism, or, you know, one thing or another with small children that have never had an eye exam until they're in school. So no matter how much you would think that you would have, um, that intuitively you would expect that a parent would know, I mean, everybody does their best for their children or we, you know, most do, it's still, no matter what it ha- is going on, it's important to continue to educate and remind. Of course. Um, but what are, okay, real talk, real, real talk. What is your general age, knowing when you had your first exam, knowing how hard it is <laughs> as a single mom, like what is your real talk advice on when your when kids should get their first exam? By one, year, by one, for sure. By what? A screening, at least. You don't can't do a whole lot. I do say that they should have a screening by one. Okay, and then after one every year, like Let's three. Now, I mean, in our and so in Alberta, they do all tell parents. You know, you do have coverage, so there's really no reason that you couldn't bring your child in. You know, as far as having coverage for an exam every single year, I'll say about three years old, and then for sure at school age annually. Um, is what we recommend. It's a little overkill, especially those families that there really aren't any problems. But, you know, we do pick stuff up. And with the changes in how we approach managing myopia, for example, it's mm-hmm. more important to really catch those trends earlier. So even if a kid isn't, you know, at like two, three, four, however old, in the, they're not minus yet, we can start to get information by seeing them a little more frequently when they're small to look at the trend of how fast they're growing. Whereas if we wait, we don't check them until they're five and they're you know, plus a quarter or Plano, you're like, wait a minute, was that a big myopic shift or have they been like this for a couple of years? I don't know. I, I personally, I think it's great to get your kids checked at one, three, and then again at school age annually. I think that's around what are kind of powers that be that I know the Canadian Association has recommended recommendations that are kind of like that. So what do I you tell the kids? Well, my, my definition, my (laughs) definition has gotten a little sloppier and to be fair, we're doing a ton of school screenings. So I'm like tapping into as many kids as I possibly can doing these screenings, which really is not a full exam as you both, you and I both know. It's really, we check vision, check binocular vision, we check color vision and that's it because we're doing like. I mean, that's all you have time to do in in that setting. And it's, I think those are great screeners though. That'll give you a clue about like, and the point is, I guess, to get them in if there's something that is flagged, right? That's exactly, that's really exactly. It's kind of like a pass, no pass. We have a, um, I found some recommendations from the, uh, department of health, I think from California that shows like what you should get, uh, vision wise for every grade. So like a kindergartner can see 2030 or something like like that. And that's past technically do you remember any of the do you remember other ages too like i always wonder like because 2025 you should see 2025 once you're like i think it's second grade and over yeah and you 2025 then that's best corrected correct um i'm just uncorrected va okay Yep, because we, we're just doing, we don't even do pinhole. As a screener. Kids. Yeah, See, as what I'm talking about is what is the acuity potential to expect? So, you know, you kind of convince oh, a three-year-old yes. to like read the acuity chart and they're getting yes. kind of sloppy 2030, 2025. I'll often reassure parents and like, you know, not every kid who's really tiny really can even see to communicate those really tiny letters. And that's very normal. But I don't know what that line is, to be honest. I would say a three-year-old, I mean... I, this is me talking off the cuff and not any sort of backed science. No, but no research. There are plenty of three-year-olds <laughs> that can see a 2020 line, but which there's like yeah. 
they're they're like intimidated sometimes or it's like right. a learning curve. Yeah. So like I don't get excited if and at least this is what the Again, like you said, powers that be say 2030 is the no pass line. But yeah. what I do is anyone who's not seeing as well as their peers in their class, I will recommend an exam. And we write in our charts that this is not an exam. We still recommend an exam even for all of the past cl- uh, patients and kids. But um, I, if their kids are not matching their peers, even if they're technically a pass, I would recommend an exam just because there could be something that would be causing them to be behind compared to their peers. Totally. So, anyways. What are some of the kind of tip-offs in your clinic that you, if parents say my kid is doing this, that would tip you off? Like one that I get like a lot or that I think about that's more, you know, less obvious than, oh, blurry vision, rubbing their eyes, squinting, you know, those are very clear. Sometimes a headache or pain. What about the eye turn and tilt? So kids will present sometimes with a little bit of a head turn and that masks um, double vision that they might get and not be able to communicate it. Um, That's one way that we can, you know, check for you know, either a need for binocular vision intervention or the need for glasses. Have you any other tips and things that you see? Well, we know, of course, squinting or mm-hmm. holding things too close or sitting mm-hmm. close to the TV. Those are usually red flags for something like myopia starting. Yeah. But I think head- headache is a big thing, and especially for little kids. Or my favorite thing that I have even all of our doctors ask as they're taking intakes or we ask all of our at our screening things like, what's your favorite subject? Like, do you like to learn? Do you like to read? Because usually a kid likes to learn. Like totally. they get interested in dinosaurs or math yeah. or whatever. They have something they like to learn because it's fun usually. Yeah. And if they don't, then potentially there's some sort of eye, eye thing or headache thing or whatever. Yeah. Or the kids that say, oh, I'm dyslexic. It's like, yeah. okay, you very well might be dyslexic. I won't go there. But it maybe you have like a plus four uh, prescription and you just struggle to read and struggle to see. And so anyways, those are the big ones. And when you have headaches, you're complaining of headaches, um, and don't like school or don't like learning, then that's to me a sign that we should at least check your vision. Totally. How about poor performance in school and behavior? Definitely. I mean, like I, I can't imagine being a parent. Well, I can hopefully someday, but there, there are so many things that probably, complicate kids succeeding in school, but something where they are struggling in school or again, like being told that they're dyslexic or struggling reading or not liking reading. It's just not the average kid that doesn't like it. And so when they're, they're hating it for one reason or another or not performing well, the eyes are such a big link to learning. And so if they can't learn, they can't use their eyes well, then they're not going to like it. And they're not going to be able to verbalize it. So that's a tricky no. thing about it. Yeah. Definitely vision therapy. I know there's, there's all kinds of, of range in what people would consider to be useful. When's the right time to intervene? I mean, personally in our clinic, we, we don't offer vision ther- therapy. We do refer though for reading programs or vision therapy programs, um, just to help with some of those underlying vision issues for small kids. Um, and again, I, I guess the message to all parents, any quick concerns, and I think this should be in the media more than it is, is to really book an appointment with your local optometrist. And that's just the bottom line. Yeah. Well, and I think on like tagging off exactly that, A, make an appointment. B, hopefully all optometrists are doing a cycloplegic exam for a kid, especially a kid that sees 2020 and it's Plano, right? Like in my opinion, that's exactly the kid you should be dilating. The only patient 
as a kid that you should consider not putting drops in, which I still think you should put it in for every, every kid is a, like a myopic patient. Like, is oh, that a stupid thing to say? Here's time for us to fight. I love this fight. So I want it. Let's see. We actually cycle every myopic patient at least once. Okay. And, I, and the idea is, I know you can get a pretty good, it's part of our workup for the myopia control clinic because I know, of course, you can plus kids up and get a really very, like, very reliable refraction, like nine times out of 10. There are some that they, you know, re- are referred in with tons more or minus than they actually have, or those tricky ones that kind of trick you. So the standard for us is we cyclo every kid in the myopia clinic at least once. And we never do it again, honestly. It's just for the baseline workup to get really clean baseline data. And then one, another, if I was going to fight myself, an argument to that is, then when you're comparing, are you comparing cyclo to non-cyclo Rx changes or what are you actually doing? And that's where axial length comes into play where we tie that all together. But yeah, we cyclo every kid, almost every, because a hyperopic child, I usually do some form of damp refraction or cyclo as well. So almost everybody, at least I mean, I agree. I agree because I think that you should just do it because A, you're going to get a dilation. So you should be able to see in the eye and make sure nothing's going on inside the eye. Yeah. But I think that you should, especially for a kid that isn't your first, like if you didn't see them the first time and you're mm-hmm. not very confident, you should dilate them regardless because, or you should be doing a refraction from zero. You know what I mean? Like totally because it's so easy to over minus a kid. Absolutely. And so whether it be dilation, which I think is the preferred option or really scrutinizing your numbers, really scrutinizing uncorrected VA and best corrected so mm-hmm. that you understand how much you're giving in minus is so crucial because otherwise kids are just so easy to over minus. They are. They're tricky and they yep. don't pay attention. Then they look at you. Then it's all messed up. And yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. but wait, the one thing I was going to say, I think I, got dist- I distracted myself. You, so start with your eye exam, do the refraction, dilate the eyes, but you don't have to love vision therapy. <laughs> not that you should not love it or love it or not. That's not my point. You don't have to do not vision therapy. <laughs> you don't have to. Like, I can only imagine as a parent where you're struggling with your child and they're having behavior problems or not poorly performing at school. And you do an exam and the patient, your your friend, the kid has maybe a, you know, minus a half or let's just, let's make it easy. They're plano prescription, 2020, near vision, 2020, no problems. Your kid's good. Bye. Right? Like, I'm not saying totally. that there still is an eye problem, but at least have another resource or two that you can refer to in the area to be able to give these parents another option that still could, I don't know, like you you mentioned reading programs, right? Like what Better are other situation. things? Yeah. Yeah, like have something that you can yeah. refer to that maybe still might be tied into utilize, like visual function, but yeah. can help give the parents another answer. Because sometimes they're just so desperate, like, and I don't blame them, so desperate for an option. I, I think it's the same thing for headache patients. They're so desperate for a reason. Why am I struggling with this problem? Mm-hmm. And so you just saying is you're good. You don't have papilledema. Yeah, that's great that like that we can all sigh a good relief that they're not, they don't have any brain swelling, but they still are having these ongoing problems. So if you can be a resource to your community and provide another option, that would be amazing. Right. Uh, uh, speech and language full time. Certainly not me. And we're happy to refer to places that do love doing it full time. Exactly. So learning even just just to reiterate and sort of like second year opinion that, that you can't really find anything 
with the actual eyeballs themselves or the eye muscles. And then it's time to move on to other perceptual testing and things like that too. Exactly. So no, I love those a lot. I actually love co-managing within optometry more than ever before because of all the specialties we've seemed to like come up with now. And as time things evolve, you know, we still, of course, love, we co-manage with ophthalmology, other health professions. But I actually find more in the last five years than ever before, serious co-management networks. And I, our office has some really seriously special and robust specialties within our practice, but there still are different specialties that we don't really do full-time. And that co-management in our optometric community, I mean, that's becoming more important to us to really show and support each other in the scope that optometry has. 100%. Totally agree. Find your things you love. Make mm-hmm. that your passion and then find friends, right? That's like, right. I couldn't agree more. And granted, now I'm in this like deserted island, basically. Well, now you're basically like rural Alberta where I you have to do know, everything all of a sudden. the thing in the world. I hate it, right. but I love it. Yeah. But still, <laughs> I think it, it makes it even more valuable. You find the things that you love and then you yeah. find your community to help because you cannot do everything yeah. And you can do everything well. Like I just, That's right. I've said this for years and I will stand behind it. Like you need to find the things that you're passionate about because doing something halfway is to no benefit to anyone. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> but okay. We, we have this in our notes and I actually really like this, this concept and it still goes along exactly with what we're saying, but talking more about taking a preventative care perception and philosophy when you're treating your patients. So, um, like bringing it back to the idea for kids and healthy habits for kids, what are some preventative care measures that you might bring up with parents or kids when it comes to the eyes, Sheila? Well, I think it's kind of one of the things I know I'd love to see more conversation about from, you know, lectures and from, I guess our power, again, the associations that help to govern and create standards of care for kids and for adults too, is would be, what are, what are the healthy habits for kids that are more similar to say the analogy to dental hygiene? So we learn at a very young age, we floss our teeth, we brush our teeth every night. At nighttime, should we be doing a, you know, converge the eyes with our toothbrush at the same time? I actually do that with my kid just to kind of see, you know, looking in with, you know, a convergence test or the old pencil push-up, whatever. Although I think the literature has recently proven that that's not as effective as once they thought it once was. But even like lash care, lid and lash care, you know, teaching early to prevent dry eye because we see in kids more and more than ever before the impact of screens and all that story that's way more popular than, well, what do we do about it? Um, You know, at an early age, I really think we should be having a whole routine surrounding eyelid care for little kids, just as important as flossing their teeth and, and brushing their teeth. Dentists, dentists are smart. They, they yeah. like had oh, a yeah. good marketing team early on. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they get their six month cleaning. Yeah. They floss every night. Yes. Honestly, maybe we just need more shameful. Like if someone's all up in your mouth asking you, do you floss every night? You're more likely to be a, like, especially at least the week beforehand, flossing every night, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to do it long enough so you don't have, like, your gums bleed or whatever when you actually go to the dentist. <laughs> exactly. You do not so you gotta start want at least a week up. or two before. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, yeah. one thing that I, I started doing a few years ago is every contact lens patient, as I'm looking behind the slit lamp, I ask them, do you ever sleep in your contacts? 
Because I want direct. them to lie to me while I am looking with a microscope at their eye. <laughs> that, like, lie to me. Like, I feel it. like that is somebody, that is me as a hygienist cleaning your gums, asking yeah. you, do you floss every do night? Do you floss, exactly. And, and that's when they're like, oh, absolutely uh, not. Or they'll be like, you know, sometimes like once or twice a month or so, <laughs> like then they'll start like fessing up. Like, there's no reason to ask them when you're doing your intake, if they sleep in their contacts, when you could do it while you're staring with a slit lamp and asking. And putting them on the spot a little more where it's like a little bit of a panic. Yes. And they don't know what you can see with a microscope. Like we might have a magic like thing that we can see with this device that makes it so that we can see through the lies. They don't know that. No. Well, and and sometimes I'll be like, well, dang, your eyes look really beautiful for sleeping in your contacts every day. You're so lucky, but, but that's not good for you. Or whatever. Or I'll be like, um, you know, do you, are your eyes really itchy? And then I'm like, I'll be mess, uh, saying out loud what I'm seeing for my scribe or, you know, saying out loud what I'm seeing with Dr. Fabiola now. And we'll be saying, you know, two plus papillae, you know, a circumlimbal ring of lysamine around the, you know, limbus. And then they'll be like, oh, well, what's that, right? So once you're calling out these negatives, then being like, well, there, there's obvious signs that you overwear your contacts or there's obvious signs that your eyes have an allergic conjunctivitis. Often I see this with overwear of your contact lenses or often I see this with allergies related to your cleaning solution or et cetera, right? And so then they're like, oh yeah, well actually my eyes are kind of itchy, especially at the end of my two weeks of wear or whatever. They might start fessing up when in the beginning they said everything's totally fine. This is how it always feels. The one so, that patients hate the most is when you like really have to start to look for like Demodex, for example, <laughs> and try to explain that one. And that's like, that is a, that's a delicate matter that, I mean, you have to look at it, right? And there's no hiding from it because it is oh what it is. Oh my God, I know. You know, you can't leave it. You have to go through it. And I mean, that leads into the whole thing of you, know, you actually have to look at the lashes when you're looking at people in the behind the slit lamp because you can miss 100%. all kinds of things that will present in, you know, a million different ways. So absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, well, let's finish this preventative care because I do like this idea. So whether it be contact lenses, kids, what are some other preventative care things that you might bring up? Or like more, not just like I'm seeing a problem and fix this problem, but like I f- could forecast that this problem is going to happen and let's, let's avoid that. Right. Yeah. I think like just proper lid care. So some form of a way of actually cleaning lashes. One of my favorite products is um, hydrochloric acid spray for patients of all ages, because really the success of contact lens, where as we know is ba- for adults and kids is definitely Im- impacted by Uh, the eyelid, you know, the eyelid will hold bacteria. The eyelid has the ability to smooth tears nicely over a contact lens, or it can be all kind of junky. So having a nice clear surface, that's sort of more free of that bacterial sort of load that can cause all that buildup and just overall increase irritation with contact lens, I think is, it's important to mitigate. And so prevention of that buildup in the first place, the hydrochloric acid spray is awesome and it's cheap. Um, it's naturally occurring. It's easy for all ages. So is I love hypochlorous? that. Hypochlorous? Hypochlorous, yeah. Okay, yeah. just make sure. Yeah. We'll so link ways. it in the notes. So there's we'll there's a few different ways you can get it. Like in Canada, we have, it's like brow tech spray. So there's like a few brow vendors. I don't know spray. what is available in Costa Rica, the States. There's a few different ones, but it's one of my personal favorites. Very easy to use. Um, and you just kind of spray it on and let it dry. 
I use it literally for everything. I use yeah. it on my dog but too. I, I use it. <laughs> I had a patient cuts. that part one of his jobs, he like, I don't know what his, but he somehow was involved in like, I don't know, making it, selling it, doing something. And he would just put it on everything too. And when he oh, realized yeah. that we had it, he was so happy because he's like, see, like, this is great. But I don't know how he was using it. He just knew all about it. I feel like he, something in another country related to it. So this is not, it's naturally occurring. It's found on our bodies. It's found everywhere. And like I said, it's cheap and easy to use. hundred percent agree. I've been a strong, strong advocate for hypochlorous acid for basically since I started the dry eye center back in Seattle. Avanova was one of the first ones that came out that I was like a big, big advocate for. It's a, they have like a unique formulation that has zero hypochlorite, sodium hypochlorite. So bleach. byproduct yep so unfortunately a lot of times the way they make it the cheap and easy way to make it they have bleach byproduct you can see it in the i was gonna say in the show notes in the ingredients if you see that hypochlorite yeah in the ingredients list then you are putting a little bleach on your eye which in my opinion is not something i like so avanova is excellent for that i'm pretty sure briotech doesn't like does it the right way too but I can't confirm that. But either way, um, it's an amazing product because you're right. You can spray it toward an open eye and zero burn. And it's actually when they originally were creating it, it's a like almost as it, they show the bio uh, activity, I guess you would say, or it's not bioavailability, but how well it cleans. And it is as effective as using betadine, basically, like it's extremely effective, but it's something that's found in our own body, yes, natu- exactly. like our natural ability to fight infection invaders and whatnot. So it's something that's totally familiar to you. There's no allergy to it. It's incredible. So are you like, is this something you just like give out as samples to everyone, or like no when do you samples? Bring it there's no, I basically I, know, I sell it to I know, everybody. There's no samples. You say you're no like, samples. Get that's just, it's way too good. We can't just give that away. We have to charge for it, and it's it's so. But good. who do you Actually, talk to about it? Pretty much everybody, even people like honestly, depends, especially contact lens wearers, um, definitely children where there's like parents do come to us with interest in dry eye. The dry arena is it's growing. And because of screen time, parents are really tuned into oh dry eye. They read about it. And that is one easy thing. It's actually pretty hard. Like I've thought a little bit about how do we create dry protocols for children? And a lot of the treatments, you know, if you think about in-office therapy is not super practical, though we have done, you know, things like IPL or radiofrequency on kids, the odd, 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 odd time if they have like a big sty or something like that. Sure. But kids are trickier to treat with a lot of the products and the easier, the better that it won't sit 100%. with like a heat mask for time where they have to Absolutely. sit there. Yeah. You know, they're not going to do particularly well with some of those lid treatments that really scrub along the lid line, but they're fine with, in fact, with, with Ava, I'll do like a spray, we call it pixie dust at night. And so it's kind of just like a nice way to, even at bedtime, you know, here comes your pixie dust, close those eyes, make a wish. And it's just really easy to use. So I basically talk about everybody with kids. Um, most contact lens patients will hear about a specialty, especially specialty patients who have gone through some form of dry protocol to clear the lash line to keep to maintain those results. Yep. Um, so well, you know, and also it, it, kids getting like recurrent styes. I don't know if that's come up totally. before, but I hate it. So sad because we know yep. that something like doxy is not great for kids. Totally. And um, it just is such an uncomfortable thing for them. And I feel so, I mean, I feel sad for anyone with styes, just a very uncomfortable. We should be K-Wells for the hydrochloric, hydrochloric, hydrochloric I literally, acid. 
don't know why Avanova hasn't talked to me sooner. Right. I, I was screaming from be, the rooftops about them. Yeah, I same. loved them. I another one, not that I want to deter from this, but another company I am head over heels about and have been for years is We Love Eyes. Oh, um, nice. I, Dr. I Tanya Gill. Okay. Out of Oakland. Yeah. She okay. um, is, I think, still in charge of We Love Eyes. She's amazing. And it's their cleansing oil is basically like a drop of oil from God. It is this tea tree. What do you cleanse? Is it for eyelashes? It's for lashes. Yeah. So tea tree, grapeseed and jojoba oil together. Mm -hmm. You use it on the lash line. Um, It's they even now have these little like tools and brushes and lash extensors, lash extension cleaner. They have a micellar water cleansing uh, spray, I think it nice. is. Um, they also have a hypochlorous acid spray, but their cleansing oil is a dream. Like anyone who has even like, you know, that flaky, nasty blepharitis that yep. you'll see kind of on, you know, especially like that sebaceous looking mm-hmm. older white guy, which is <laughs> stereotypical. It's a dream for that. Or someone who has just like dry, uncomfortable, cracky lids, like rosacea, lids amazing and then for taking makeup off it's incredible it's oh. so soothing around the eyes yeah not sponsored the, by any of this i want to check the show notes i'm obsessed obsessed with it Highly well, i trust your opinion so i'm probably going to yeah. try to order it later tonight. i would recommend it i would I recommend it. it actually for <laughs> again not a promotion here but for optometrists it's like a super easy wholesale process nice and um yeah so it's good. They even like let you get it like a sample kit for a fair price. And uh, once you get it, you literally will never go back. Not only did I sell it to basically every patient, male and female, because the cleansing oil is kind of weird for female or males, but they'll do it too. Because it's just like butter on the face. It's amazing. And around See, and the eyes. These protocols should be like a standard. It should be like polishing your teeth. Yes. You, like, and it would just prevent, I think, a lot of the junk that we see when we finally get somebody in who's bad enough with, you know, Discomfort or drop it with their contacts. Yeah. Recurrent infections at the lash line. Yeah. You know, kids with in- inflammation and we're seeing gland drop out earlier. All these, we got to do something against it to help to maintain what we're born with. 100%. And so, yeah, no, these are, I, I think they're underutilized products on normalize, honestly. I totally agree. Well, tell me, you have, we were talking before, you have a really awesome flow chart for dealing with patients with dry eye. Yeah, so like I mean, Ria's in like our clinic. Yeah, so in our clinic, Ria's Ahmed actually made this is a, a, a little. Well, we can the version of the flowchart I'm looking at that I'll show you, and we can link it later is a little bit outdated. So this is a couple years old, and so we've really updated things in our clinic since then. But he made this, and it's you know this is not this is not a guideline from any association or any you know of our governing bodies. This is just something that we played around with in the office a little bit to help all the doctors do the same thing at the same time. So starting off in our dry clinic, the very first challenge is, you know, do you treat or do you not treat? You know, are we required to treat somebody who's asymptomatic when we see Demodex, for example? Um, You know, do we only treat when people are really motivated and excited? So we start off usually in the top of the pyramid with just looking at, is this patient symptomatic or asymptomatic? Because that'll really dictate their motivation level to fall through with treatments that we recommend. Absolutely. Okay. So patients symptomatic. Okay. But then they're, okay. So first question. Okay. What if they're not symptomatic? 
So if they're not symptomatic, it still is our responsibility to be checking. So this is where it comes, you know, check the lash. So any eye exam in an asymptomatic or a symptomatic person should be checking this. And so what we do, if they're not symptomatic, we kind of, we know they're going to be less likely to be motivated, but we can, we can get their interest piped if we have some, a way that we can show them what we're seeing. So the first thing that we'll look at is do, are we looking at MGD? Do they have meibomian gland dysfunction and Demodex? So those are the two things that we would kind of think about. Those um, are your, your non-starters. Yeah, sure. We'll do it that way. And it doesn't mean that there's no MGD in the motivated section, but just as far as we're, we're not going to miss these two. So we'll look and see, are they, and look for in particular MGD or Demodex. Okay. Tell Um, me though, question for MGD. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What is your defining factor is like you have MGD? Because how many people like real talk have yeah. zero MGD? Zero humans on this right. planet. So like yeah. what is a, what is like, oh God, I mean like we know the plus fours, right? But like yeah. at what level are you like, okay, you need to start doing something about this. So what we look for is we'll do, we have, um, we image glands with mybography Okay. And so we're checking for kind of baseline and Structural we don't do it every assessment. year. Yeah. So patients that are not symptomatic, we would do kind of a one-time first or in a dry eye workup, but we wouldn't necessarily image every single year unless we're following them more closely because glands are not just going to drop out instantly. Okay. And it's kind of like glaucoma. If it's going to recede, it'll take a little bit longer. It's not really necessary to image again every six months, you know, whatever. Right. Some patients we check a little more frequently if they have a sty and we want to just look and see what that did to them. But anyways, so early MGD all levels of MGD in a patient who's not symptomatic, not motivated, we're still going to take a look and push on the gland with light pressure on the lid. We're going to check for keratin buildup. We're going to check to see if they have any form of recession or blood vessels in the eyelid, which we can talk about rosacea later. And more times than not, the answer to that is probably yes to a certain extent. And if they do have MGD that is present, then we may consider at that point you know, just kind of those simple recommendations of using a heat mask, for example. Um, our clinic has really moved away from offering a lot of advice without a full comprehensive workup. So there's a few basic things that we may talk about to a patient, but it's very limited. So at this point, we would just kind of give them information and essentially, you know, maybe recommend a heat mask if it's very obvious that they need it, but kind of just move on and have them back in in a year for routine care and talk to them again about it um, or encourage. No, Demodex is very different because that's something that whether they're symptomatic or not, um, we're going to treat. So Demodex okay. should definitely be treated and should be, um, we take photos to show the patient of exactly what we're looking at. There's no better way to get them motivated to do something by showing them the blown up picture of what a Demodex might look like under a microscope because it's a little bug with little legs and wormy body and all that stuff. And patients don't really like to see it. And so at that point, then we can consider some kind of treatment, whatever it is in your office that you would use. Um, What do do you guys have in Costa Rica for Demodex or what would you do? So I can give you what we do too. Yeah. In general, where I start is um, we'll recommend a cleansing oil. So again, going back to my tea tree based cleansing oil mm-hmm. through We Love Eyes. I think it's super, super effective. Well, by I think, I mean, it is super, super effective, especially if you get on a little bit of routine for it. Mm-hmm. In the past, I've used uh, Blefx. To be honest, I don't love using Blefx. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like a super uncomfortable patient. It's a one 
obviously it's a one-time treatment, but it's just, in my opinion, one time of doing that is not that effective. If someone just gets in a routine of cleansing around their lashes, they usually do a pretty good job at that. And, and then, then, if then they, I think what you're talking about too is the one thing that made me think of is the, um, the actual mite cycle is not going to be eradicated with that one exactly. treatment. So if you do have like, say for whatever, whatever you're doing in your office, whether it's like a, you know, a treatment with a medication in it or like a tea tree and oil, whatever it is, it's often necessary to take a second pass two weeks later. Cause mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're getting rid of the cholerets and, um, the Demodex, but then the second round, you've got to get rid of the eggs and everything like that too. And there's going to be another round of them. So usually for anything that's significant, it takes at least two treatments to really eradicate with maintenance wipes with some form of medication or tea tree or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and in Costa Rica, XDEMV is not available. Is it available in no. Canada? No, so sad. And so, <laughs> yeah, hopefully <laughs> one day. Hopefully Eventually. one day. Yeah. But that would be a nice thing to add to the, if I was in, in the U.S., I definitely would be prescribing that. Hopefully people are giving that a chance because it is such a nice short yeah. treatment yeah. option to do something that is such a pain in the butt to be able to treat for yeah. some patients. But honestly, like, I don't know, real talk, Sheila, Yes, we don't like Demodex, but we know that like 75% of people over 70 have it. Okay, over 70. How much of it is, how (laughs) much, I know that's an old one, but still, how, like, the concept of 100% eradication forever, is that real? No, I think think people need to say overpopulation, right? That's the problem. And I so think this goes back to why habit, why we need hygiene for it too. So yes. we would like continue to, the maintenance by doing like an annual treatment if somebody is prone to it because whatever in the environment led to having Demodex is probably going to happen again, honestly. Exactly. So we usually at any point will always try to point patients to a dry eye workup. So if there's say asymptomatic, you know, we're going to still touch on the fact that they probably have meibomian gland dysfunction and a few basic little things, but we're not going to get into detail. We're always going to steer patients in every occasion or every possible way into like a comprehensive dry workup. And I realize not every office does it this way, but we do whenever we can. Demodex, when we see that, is definitely one where we would steer toward a dry eye workup after we treat it. And the purpose of that is to really give, you know, ample time to spend you know, it takes a while if you're really looking at all the causes of dry eye, allergy, everything like that, to dig through a patient's systemic health, take proper imaging. We do, you know, tear osmolarity, gland scans, um, you know, all kinds of different kind of analyses to look at, you know, water versus oil and staining of the sclera on different dyes. And so that takes a little bit of time. And a lot of it is counseling and talking to the patient about options. So we do really try to steer almost everybody, especially on the motivated side. You know, if we ask if they're symptomatic, yes. Um, if they're, are they motivated to do something about it? Yes, I am. That's a pathway straight to the dry eye workup section. Um, patient who is, is symptomatic and not motivated is the trickiest because they'll come in with the biggest complaints, but aren't really, really willing to do too much. And those ones are always tricky. Um, it's hard to kind of get people to get on board who just they'll openly say, Hey, yeah, you know, I, I am symptomatic, but I'm not going to be compliant with home care. I don't like taking time to do stuff. Sometimes we'll still get those people into interested in a, the dry clinic by letting them know that there's in-office therapies that can kind of skip the line. And if they're not good at home therapy, then they could be put into a clinic that they come in, you know, at whatever frequency for in-office therapies, like, you know, radio frequency, IPL, whatever it is to give them that little boost that they're just not able to do, be compliant with the home treatments. 
Love that. I mean, it's smart because it is hard when people are not motivated, but I think really, I don't know, this is sort of what I'm hearing. So you kind of had touched on it earlier for the non-symptomatic MGD, but just bringing it up is the important part, right? Just yeah, it's like, like planting seeds. Mm-hmm. You don't know how many times we'll bring something up with somebody that's, but you don't want to go overboard. Somebody who's feeling pretty good, doesn't really have any concerns. You you don't really want to create anxiety and a huge big problem, but we do. It's our responsibility to say, yeah, like you've got signs of gland dysfunction or signs of ocular rosacea. This is something we're going to kind of, you know, we have options to treat this depending on how severe it is. And a lot of the time, I honestly find if it's the first a non-symptomatic patient is hearing about it, they will take the information away and we might not do anything about it for a couple of years. But once they have that information, they may start to think about what they're living with that they've sort of just been used to, do a little 100%. research, think about it. And then the following year, they might come back with a little bit more motivation or interest in doing something about it. 100%. Well, I mean, one thing I think about when it comes to the dry eye clinic in general or dry eye as a category, or let's just go broader than that and go ocular surface disease, right? Term. Is there are the symptomatic patients, which are always a little easier to treat because whether it's a new tool or a new medication or a new technique, there's so many new things in the dry eye realm that we can usually provide to do something new and different for our symptomatic patients. But it's the asymptomatic ones that are I think kind of the more challenging patients, especially when it crosses into the line of, you know, corneal findings, right? Like for me personally, a non-starter. So for you, not, this is not just, you have a lot of non-starters too, but like you brought up Demodex is like a, we're going to do something about this, right? For me, a non-starter is any corneal staining. If I see corneal staining, I'm going to basically stop the entire exam. We're not going to refract. We're not going to do anything. And we're going to come back in two weeks or come back whenever the plan is. Because that to me, I don't care if you feel nothing. In fact, that's even worse than if you feel something like obviously you're going to be symptomatic. But a non-symptomatic corneal stain never should be ignored. And it's always really sad when I see people that have that and they're like, it's clear that they've had this going on for a long time. I love this. And I'm this is mic. perfect. I, Done. I'm turning my mic off. <laughs> I love just this kidding. because it's, I have my patient literally from, well, he just came back in today, but so here's the scenario. So Tell we me. get a patient um, that had presented to us for specifically for it because he had researched the dry clinic, went for a LASIK assessment three weeks before history mm-hmm. was wearing biweekly contact lenses Mm-hmm. And having kind of this long, upon questioning, of course, this long-term history for several years of these, what he called flare-ups, where mm-hmm. he'd become really uncomfortable in his contacts and have to take them out for a few days. Anyways, that's just a thing on the side. He didn't really care too much about that. What he did was he thought, you know what, I'm having these flare-ups. I, I can't wear my contacts the way I want to. And went straight over to a surgical center to have a consult for LASIK. He thought, and you know, that's very logical. I mean, it's I can understand why a patient would consider doing that. His experience, not so good with contacts. Whatever. LASIK Center declines and tells him that he has, what did they call it? They called it, I think they called it contact lens red eye, which maybe they're talking about Claire. They called it (laughs) neovascularization over the whole entire eye, according to the patient. Um, They said that there's no way that he could possibly have LASIK and said, go see your eye doctor for an eye exam. 
And so he came to us and presented with what was complete toxicity staining that looked to me a lot like solution use. That was, you know, you know how some patients that use monthly or biweekly, if they're wearing lenses that are soaked in cleaner for however long. Yeah, they're just like clean. It's just toxicity. But he hadn't been wearing his contacts for three weeks prior to seeing me. So what this has turned into is like a perfect example of, you know, the first time I saw him, it was for an eye exam. Protocol, normally, you know, you do a refraction, you're going to come up with a glasses prescription, maybe consider contacts. I 100% was on board with exactly what you're just saying. So froze everything when we saw all this staining. I would also in my clinic normally hold on putting patients on any eye drops without a proper full dry eye workup and get a good baseline of, okay, where are we now? In this case, I put him straight on steroids just to get the process started. It's like an ethical thing. I'm not going to let him go like that for longer than is necessary. You know what I mean? And so where we're at now, started him on steroids, booked him in for a follow-up on that, plus a full dry workup, which he was actually coincidentally in today. And he's improved, but I'm still holding on everything, Roya, because he still stains. 100%. Like a one, two plus everywhere, still healing. Wait, did you say he's uncomfortable or no? It's just the vision. Barely. Thing. That's the thing. So his flare yes. up was a bit of lens discomfort and kind the of the eye would get red. Yeah. And the vision, that was the biggest one was the fluctuating and his vision would get blurry. So I he's finally patient. more clear with his glasses, but it still isn't enough for still. me. Okay. So I had a patient, first of all, okay. Opposite. Cause I had a patient that did this, except he had actually gotten LASIK. For that reason. And um, so he was only coming to me because he continued to have blurry vision. Yeah. And long story short, I actually prescribed him um, Oxervate. And I actually wrote an article that got into cornea from, from, because it was like a super fascinating case. How did you get that where you were? What do you... This was when I was in Seattle. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, yeah. And actually, I had two cases come in kind of around the same time. It was perfect. And they both were post-LASIK non-symptomatic neurotrophic keratitis stage one, right? So they're staging for it. Yeah. But anyways, um, the point is it ended up working. I don't know. Like you should check for, check for that and see if he would, your patient would qualify for it, but it ended up working and clearing the cornea. But the bigger thing that actually happened, cause actually when we would stop observate, it would go away. Right. Or sorry, it would come back. So I actually yeah. used Oxervate twice with him, two cycles oh, wow. of it, which is a big deal because I don't, yeah. I don't know if you prescribed before, but it's like a huge super high cost, right? The cost, his insurance ended up covering it, but nice. the effort of it is a big effort because yeah. you don't even have a drop. There's this like, it, like it, it comes in these vials, sort of, and you have to extract it, and then mm-hmm. you have to use it eight times a day. It has to skip cold. It's like a huge deal. Yeah. Anyways, I ended up using plugs for him and I used steroid taper and I feel like plugs have gotten a bad name recently and I don't think it's fair. Like I know that it's not the best. I used to hate them and think they were just like the devil for dry eye because you're trapping inflammation on the eye and it's foreign to the eye. Mm -hmm. I freaking love plugs, especially for a patient that has corneal findings. So let me tell you about his, the reason that this patient is perfect for that treatment as well is in his dry eye workup. So glands were decent, pretty good, but blocked. So not a lot of oils coming out, but still some. So it wasn't like a total, he has, you know, real estate to work with. Tear meniscus, like nothing. So super, super staining, like really no water on the eye, whether that's evaporating right away or in, he had no autoimmune condition, but for whatever reason, his state of inflammation, he just wasn't making anything. So that's exactly the path that we're on. So he, you know, he's had his two weeks of steroids that he's almost healed. 
we're going to start to taper that and move him into a longer term um, anti-inflammatory drop. We're using Zydra in this case, but I'm also putting him on PRP drops for a little bit with plugs. And we're going to give it another week or so of like, you know, I usually calm inflammation a little bit first before I put plugs in and then, but it's great. I actually, that is the one area if I'm going to use a like blood biologic um, or a patient who's truly like actually presenting with, without enough water um, on the eye plugs are, can be really helpful to rehabilitate and get them back to good. Yeah. Actually, I don't know about you, but I became a big fan of the dissolvable plugs. Oh, nice. I no, I haven't gone some, there I just don't like them because I can't see if they're actually there or if they fall through or whatever. I agree. And that's exactly <laughs> the thing. I usually will give patients the option. Yeah. But I have had a few patients that, um, like, I don't... This is number one. You could argue that in, infection, like you could get infected around the, the plug or maybe it's trapping some inflammation, oh my gosh. blocking some of the I natural. I had a patient have a plug overgrow one time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've seen people have two had that in the drain, which probably means one was down in there and kind of worked yeah. its way up. Terrifying. Yeah. But, um, but where was I going with this? No, but the there are some that are a three-month plug. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So totally. it takes a lot longer to dissolve. There's like the yep. one day or the one week or, yes. but the three month is kind of nice because then you, and you can get different, uh, diameters. Yep. So then it Small, will definitely medium, last large. longer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think some of them, the one that I used to order from the most, uh, I'll have to go link it in the show notes, but it mm-hmm. was, um, I think it was like a 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, whatever. Like it had the millimeters listed. I think it's like point, I feel like point two point like, Point two would be really small, actually. Yeah, they're no, in the cupboard right was, beside me at the clinic. I could go find yeah. them, but I'm going to take your word for it. It's somewhere well, around I, there. I ordered probably like I can't tell you how many brands that I went through till yeah. I found the one that I liked. The one you love. I want to love. Love is a strong word, though. Do you really love it? I honestly, I do love them. My, yeah. my patients with graft versus host yeah. disease. It yeah. always like really broke my heart when yeah. when like a local dog like because. And when I was back in Seattle, patients would come to their Seattle annual mm-hmm. uh, GVHD. Like they had an amazing long-term follow-up clinic there. So they'd yeah. have to come for their annual appointment and then they would come see me for their eyes. And I would usually, if especially if they had a, some significant eye things, I usually yeah. would add at least a dissolvable plug and yeah. start some steroids to calm things down. And then I would have them follow up with their local doc. And so many of them will be like, yeah, my doctor says I need, you know, warm compresses and that I have too much inflammation to put a plug in. And I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) don't be too focused on the little things when they have a big thing. Totally. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any awesome pearls for treating dry eye? Actually? Yeah, I do. I would say one of the things that I felt that was crucial when you are talking with a patient whether it's after your assessment or even sometimes you can you can kind of figure out exactly where you're going just from your intake mm-hmm. is making your patient confident that you know what's going on and that you're going to have a good plan for them that they are not hopeless because I oh, think I love so that. many people feel super hopeless because mm-hmm. they've been maybe bounced around a couple different doctors or they're just been dealing with this for a long time or maybe their last doctor just never really cared. It's always yes. been this way. Yes. And just saying like, oh, I've got you. I know what's happening and I know exactly what we can do. I have a plan. Let's go through your flow chart you just mentioned or whatever. Like we have a plan and mm-hmm. this is not going to be a problem. Yes, it's going to take a little while to fix, but we'll get there. I love that sentiment. And that, I mean, a lot of these patients, like you said, have been through 
all kinds of failures of trying, trying different, you know, treatments or, and it is because dry is so multifactorial and so many things can make you have ups and downs. If patients are not educated and have that network of understanding that it's like, I'm all, I'm not going anywhere. This is going to be a lifelong thing. We're going to have to continue on versus, okay, like try this, try the drops and with no plan. I mean, it's very obvious which one feels better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also it's like, it doesn't need to be said like, this is a lifelong thing. It's like, we can find something that's manageable. Like you don't have like a terminal illness here. You have a discomfort that's a chronic, it can be chronic, but we can find something. So you're not like, it's not your normal thing. Like is brushing your teeth chronic? Yeah, absolutely. But you have a, you have a maintenance thing. And then you don't even think about that being a problem, but you're building up, like you're building up bacteria in your mouth every night. And you don't think that brushing your teeth is a bad thing. Like, I love that. You create a habit that's going to be good and it's going to maintain your eyes feeling good. So you can do what you want to do, both relax, work and all of that. You know, one hook we have to get patients into the dry clinic, because really it is the most effective and it's ultimately to do our best for them. So we want to be able to have from a practice management perspective, be able to charge for a service, have a clinic where we have the time and space to that to give these people the time that they need to feel like they're heard and everything like that. But one hook that we use um, that is, can be effective is how many times do you think about your dry, your eye feeling dry every single day? And then if yes, well, how many times a day? And that, that's not a normal, you shouldn't be having to go through every single day thinking about dry eye instead of finishing off whatever it is that you're doing or do, thinking about the positives or whatever, whatever it is. Exactly. And that sometimes brings, reminds people that that's not, it's not a normal thing to always be having that burning feeling or thinking about whatever or the vision fluctuating or whatever it is. Um, that goes on the notion of, have you ever heard of empathetic care absolutely. in healthcare? Yes, yeah. So absolutely. it's, it's trending and it's also not just it's in optometry, trending. but it is because one of the things that came out of the COVID times too, is how do we like kind of balance the things that are good for us and good for patients. And one of the findings of some studies that were done found that first of all, empathetic care means that it's, it's essentially when empathetic care is when patients feel like they're being heard and really understood. Um, and what empathetic care does is by having patients, A, be part of the process and really kind of be feeling like the things they're saying matter. Yes. Um, empathetic care also means that as providers, we're not just providing recommendations of, you know, very black and white where it's like, okay, this person has Demodex. They need to do A, B, C, D. That's it. We're also considering the patient. What is their, what are their abilities? What is their motivation? Where do they live? Are they able to come back for treatments or not? And making a recommendation that is aligns with what they actually can do and what they're willing to do versus, I mean, we've all been, a, not that it's not bad. I'm not saying bad on physiotherapy. I just know I've had this experience where it's like, okay, here's like 20,000 exercises for this week. Yeah, Go do right, it. And it's right. just, I, I'm, I've even you, you mean well, but you just, we're not going to stick to something that doesn't fit within my family schedule or whatever. So empathetic much. care yeah. is those two pieces. And when we practice empathetic care patients, the outcome that has been shown in studies is improved satisfaction, adherence to treatment and health outcomes. So maybe Love with that. that goal being just a little bit more aligned with what somebody can actually do, they're more likely to fully be compliant with that plan. And then the outcome ultimately is better, which makes sense. And it's actually been shown to be really good for the provider too. So studies show that practicing empathy and patient care does help physicians and optometrists find more meaning in their work and it does reduce burnout. So improve well-being for everybody is what actually comes about from empathetic care. Well, yeah, I mean, 
like translation, the TLDR, empathetic care is like basically realistic care, right? Like what are they yeah, realistically going to do? What are they realistically yep. able to pay for? Like, would I want to do this? <laughs> I mean, that is empathy, right? Like, yeah. do you relate with someone? But no, I love that. Speaking of which, I, I accidentally ordered myself OrthoK lenses when I was working on a, making a lecture, <laughs> uh-huh. fiddling with software. And then I, I have these lenses sitting on my desk. I'm actually minus 0.75 now. I never used to be. Oh. And I'm like... I don't want to wear lenses, but I'm like, wait a minute, what am I talking about? I should totally, so I'm actually going to take them home tonight and give them a try. And next time we talk on this, um, oh, I'll update you. Wait. Yeah. But it's, it's like, do I want to do this? And I'm like, do I want to do this? <laughs> Telling all these people to work. Like I love OrthoK. I love working with OrthoK patients. And I'm like, I think about that even as my keratoconic patients. I'm <laughs> like, I love doing this, but I would hate never this. want to do this. Yeah, I would hate so it's it. like, like I wouldn't wish catatonics on anyone. It's yeah. the worst. Yeah. But I do love to be able to treat it. It's, yes, it's so funny. Hate. Some of that I know because you don't really have any correction either, do you? You're kind of like me with like no need. Yeah. So, I'm anyways, sure I've had obviously as a plus fifty, <laughs> so I'm even worse. Oh, oh, yeah. You're gonna be like. I'm happy to be on the minus side, like getting it, like heading toward presbyopia and we'll be able to just read a little longer is going to be like, it's not, yeah, it's here. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I would, if I was to choose refractive surgery for myself, if I was a higher minus, minus, I now knowing what I know, I would shoot for the end point of minus 50 or something like that. hundred percent. Minimally. Yeah. Whenever patients that are like around a minus one ask, should I, like, I want to get LASIK. I'm like. I just don't want to shake them. Don't <laughs> like do what you want, but don't. Yeah. <sighs> well, I think this was great, Sheila. It's always fun chatting with you. I always learn things, and it's always really nice to sit down and have a little relaxed chit chat. So I do really appreciate uh, the session tonight. Love it. I totally agree. Well, we have come to the end for today. We want to hear from you, so reach out to us with your feedback, questions, stories things you are interested in hearing from us either through our Instagram or Facebook and we can't close today's show without saying thanks to Valley Contacts for both making great products and for being amazing people to work with be sure to tune in and listen to our next episodes but until then try not to blink blink